Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. MotoGP is in the middle of its three-week early season spring break, a little bonus before the much longer summer break that's coming up shortly afterwards. And frankly, we needed that break and the field needed that break after a bruising start to the 2023 season, one that's been full of surprises, so much so that the theme of this week's The Race MotoGP podcast is the biggest shocks of the season so far. And that came from the our original idea was going to be that we'd get Amy Reynolds back if she was free and talk about our predictions that we'd made shortly before the start of the season. And then we realised that most of our predictions now looked particularly stupid because so many of the riders we're making predictions about have been in and out of hospital since the season began. So instead, we thought we'd look back at some of the things that had surprised us most about this really entertaining, but also quite messy and contentious start to the season. I'm Matt Beer. Joining me are Simon Patterson coming to us from his house house not a van or a car park or a press room and valentin harunchi how are you both uh, enjoying the break enjoying some time off that was much needed after really busy start to the season yeah i mean i was i was damn near reduced to tears by by the news that the MotoGP break was going to contain an f1 triple header and obviously it's like it's in really bad circumstances but emily getting cancelled if you take the the devastation out of it has been quite nice from a professional standpoint. Yeah, uh, it was um, obviously thoughts with everyone affected by everything that happened in Italy a few weeks ago. But from a work point of view, being able to make that a clear weekend for a lot of our colleagues was was definitely quite welcome. So we've got we've picked six biggest things that have surprised us with a few kind of sub shocks to throw in there as well. And I've decided the order of these in terms of what surprised me most. And the first one is the plight of Yamaha. Only one podium finish so far. We didn't expect Yamaha to be mounting maybe a particularly equal title challenge against Ducati, given how last season had gone. But for Fabio Quartararo to, at this point in the season, only be ninth in the championship, having not looked vaguely like winning a a race at any point, is... um, is really quite staggering and to me it feels like we saw this coming to a degree and then at the end of testing when they started trying to do proper qualifying performance runs and basically nothing happened at Yamaha that feels like the moment that this really blew up what do you reckon Simon? I'm not going to say that I predicted it being this bad because no one predicted it being this bad but at the same time I don't think I'm hugely surprised by this per se because you know we've been warning for a long time that as Fabio Quattararo has been demanding more power from the bike, that the consequences of, of cramming a more powerful engine into the existing bike without doing things with the aero, doing things with the chassis, was going to be that it was going to get worse and not better. Um, and essentially, that's what we're seeing right now. They've absolutely made a more powerful bike, and the consequence of that is that they can't manage the power uh, especially on, on you know corner exit and acceleration. Whenever you speak to engineers in the paddock, the issues are all with... They're, they're not with top speed anymore. They're all with acceleration. Um, I think whenever we go to Mugello next week and see you know see exactly what the new R1 engine is capable of, M1 engine is capable of in a straight line, it's going to be quite fast um, because it's going to have a lot of time to get to that speed. But then we're going to go to somewhere like Saxon Ring, where you have to accelerate quickly on a short straight, and they're going to struggle again because, you know, we know where the problem lies. Um, the the good news about that is that it's something that's in theory fixable. It's something that's in theory fixable mid season, but you know they they need to come back from the summer break or from the spring break with some serious upgrades. And what we've seen so far this year with the you know, the, the stuff that they brought to Hareth for the first post-race test is that those upgrades aren't coming. So what has been a really, really disappointingly bad start to the season and a really dis- disappointingly bad attempt at Fabio Quattro to, to regain the title is only going to get worse unless Yamaha have 
really, really rethought how they're operating internally over the course of the last, what, two months? Honestly, I think it'll get better even without that, just because I think they'll optimize what they have in terms of the new power, because it feels like that's, that's usually how it works. Uh, I think in Le Mans, Jean Mir, you know, when asked about Yamaha, said that, you know, they had a similar thing at Suzuki where they bolted on a bunch more, a bunch more power and it, well, the word he used, I'm not going to repeat, but let's say it screwed the, the existing bike. And then they spent, I think, most of the season basically getting back in tune with that by the sounds of it. And Suzuki ended 2022 really, really well. I mean, it's gone, but if it hadn't been gone, then a more powerful Suzuki this year would have been a very, very formidable proposition. For me, the, the, the big Yamaha problem is not even that it's slow right now, but that it's mismatched with its lead rider in terms of what they should want and where they should be right now. Fabio Carteraro has established himself as one of MotoGP's modern stars, one of the best riders on the grid. Uh, Yamaha is in a place where ideally it would have riders slightly lower down the rung. I don't want to say hungrier, but slightly... I, w- I don't want to say younger also because Fabio is really young, but maybe newer to MotoGP or at least less having t- tasted less MotoGP success, if that makes sense. The pressure from Fabio is very understandable because he's used to being one of the men in this class the last couple of years. But where if, if you had just two sort of younger projects who maybe come from the midfield or come straight from Moto2, you might have an easier time managing that sort of thing. And you might finish seventh, eighth, ninth and go, well, it's okay because we're, you know, we're in our rebuilding phase. Because tacking on a lot of new power, which is which is what was required, it is it is a rebuild of sorts. And you you need you need time for a rebuild, usually. I mean sometimes it, it does seem to happen in a snap for some projects, but sometimes you, you need time. And usually you need time. And the whole thing is complicated even further by the fact that they've only got two riders. Um, like, th- there's nothing on the horizon that makes me believe Yamaha's bullish optimism that they're going to have a factory t- or satellite team again next season. It- it's just, it's not going to happen at this point. No. There's no way for it to happen. Um, and-, and that means that development is slower. It means that there's no place for younger riders. It means that all of the pressure is on Quartararo, I think especially as, as Franco Morbidelli is struggling. Um, and and that's showing in both his performances and his comments to the media, I think. Um, the problem on the other side of the garage that they have now as well is that you know there was a while that Franco Morbidelli looked like he was surefire on his way out of the Yamaha project. And it's now, the bike is has now been shown to be so bad this year that I think Morbidelli is actually going to get another year simply because no one else wants to ride it. Like, can you imagine no one wanting to ride a factory Yamaha because the bike is so bad? That that just, really shows that, you know... It's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. It, it highlights the situation that they're in more than anything we can say. Um, but, you know, what is the timeline for getting out of this hole? What is the solution? What is the path forward? Is it just spending more time and riding more bikes? Who knows? All right, so it's a precarious situation also because... I, you are, you still do feel a time crunch and that also adds to that sort of my point of the mismatch of expectations maybe or the mismatch of timelines. I know Yamaha is not really the kind of team that you think of being okay with having an off year or two. But, you know, in, in modern MotoGP, when you're no longer one of two big manufacturers, you just got to do that sometimes, I think. And the problem is that by the end of the year, Yamaha will certainly need to show and prove something because otherwise the chat for 2025 contracts will start in the off season as it always does i mean it probably it will start earlier than that but in the off season it will take proper serious shape to the point where some contracts might well be signed already probably will be uh yamaha has just already lost one star in one category and in, in arguably a better situation in World Superbike than it is in MotoGP. Like, that was at least a, a regular podium finishing World Superbike bike. And still, you know, top right grass got Lee Oglu's heading off. 
he probably could have kept top rank Rice Gatlioglu by placing him in the MotoGP squad, but that would have been a sort of a solution where you kill two birds and one, with one stone, but in a bad way. Like you, you arguably downgrade from Franco Morbidelli in terms of MotoGP potential, and you also take out your World Superbike star from World Superbikes anyway. So it doesn't really do anybody any good. But I mean, they have to see what happened there and get a couple of alarm bells over hanging on to Quartararo longer term because Quartararo every weekend sounds not super happy with his lot currently. And and you can understand that very easily. But it, you know, like the contracts are currently helping them out in terms of the cycle, but still you have to get a move on because of that. Yeah, in the, in this break, Yamaha's alternative options have just been dwindling before its eyes, really. Jorge Martin's noises about what he might want to do next season was sounding more and more like staying put at Ducati, which is a million percent logical, because why would you leave this, you know, the best bike on yeah. the grid and it's that, that um, factory's second string team to move to a team in Yamaha's current situation. Razgat Lioglu wasn't looking like a MotoGP option the more time he actually spent on the MotoGP bike, as far as we, we understood, but... He was still a kind of, uh, yeah, an option that existed within the Yamaha ranks that's gone. And the thing is, that there, there aren't question marks over what Quattararo's doing and what his contribution is. You know, I, I, I'm, you look at the times across a weekend and how often he hits his peak on a Friday and then just cannot get any more out of the bike. So although there aren't any obvious vacancies at other teams right now where you can see, well, uh, we'll there will be a few that we'll come on to, but yeah, you know, everyone else will be looking at Quattararo and going, we could lure him from Yamaha. He's a proven world champion, arguably should be world champion two or three times by now if Yamaha had uh, been in a slightly different position. He's going to be much in demand and Yamaha doesn't have a lot of time. Looking at how long it took Honda to sort itself out, and it hasn't yet, looking at how long Ducati was in the doldrums, like you say, this is not this is not necessarily going to happen overnight, even for a, a mark as successful as Yamaha historically. Honestly, I the rider situation solution that I think of every couple of months once and then immediately forget is I think they should go for Zarco. I think Johan Zarco returning to Yamaha would make a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of sense. I think that injection of experience and Ducati know-how and baseline ability would be very, very useful. And I think Zarco would actually entertain being the, the big man in the factory team. I think that would be more tempting to him than to younger guys like Jorge Martin and Marco Bezzecchi who know that their factory chance is coming at some point down the line somewhere. Uh, yeah, but it's it's not an easy situation and it's it should be easier than this. It should be easier to find somebody to ride your factory Yamaha M1, shouldn't it? It's 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 not it it, it reflects a certain grimness. It's not quite the Aprilia of a couple of years ago of like Moto2 riders don't want our bike. Like, they're not quite there. But, again, maybe there's a lesson there because those Moto2 riders should not have rejected this bike, which is now a, a really good bike. Yeah, very, very true. Our, our list of people who turned Aprilia down is one of my favorite features we've we've run on the race. And it it ran a few months before Aprilia got really, really competitive as well. But that, speaking of things we, we've run on the race, I think you advocating Zarco for Yamaha definitely goes in on my notepad as things I'm going to commission a column about. Because I did... When, when you were building up to that sentence, I did not think the last words, the words in it were going to be Johan Zarco. That was not where I saw that going at all. But you're almost convincing me. If he's paired with someone, if he's basically paired with the next quarter hour, if Yamaha finds someone in Moto2 who's actually much better than anyone else has realised yet, Zarco plus a young person. Yeah, it does make, it does make some sense. I mean, the current quarter hour would be, would be fine to pair with him. Uh, I mean, I, I, I guess all French lineup is maybe some sort of either extra bonus or PR hit. I'm not sure how that particularly works, but that I think I think Fabio would quite appreciate that. He would appreciate an injection of extra experience. Um, I think it would make a lot of sense, genuinely. The more I think about it, the more I weirdly sell myself on it. Uh, and it's not it's not from anything I've heard or read anywhere. It just came to me just now, as it does sometimes, as I say, every couple of months. The, the problem with that is that Yamaha have to show willing to take that injection of experience and use it properly. Yeah, true. And I think that that's been one of their big downfalls so far. 
they you know they you can have the best test riders and the best team in the world but if you don't listen to what they're telling you and use that to change your bike then the whole thing's a waste of time and you know every time i look at their bike and the honda actually for that matter and then look at the ducati's aerodynamics the aprilia innovations that they're doing with wings and fairings it it still looks like a 2009 moto gp bike except it's got some wings bolted in the front that they have not embraced this concept of aero as an integrated package of the bike and to me that that just highlights the reticence to change to evolve and until they prove that they're willing to do that there's not really any point in having ducati expertise is there no, this is a fair point, and one I can imagine Jorge Lorenzo and possibly Cal Crutchlow too making quietly if they listen to this podcast. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's move on to the, the, the team I kind of always pair with Yamaha in my head as one that used to be good and really should be, but isn't right now. But this time, this is a positive shock. The fact that Alex Rins won a race for Honda very early in the 2023 season. I, I remember predicting before the start of the season that Alex Marquez would win a race before Mark Marquez this season and you two laughing at me. I think I'm, I'm quite given up on that one. Yeah, although it might need some, some drizzle somewhere. But I did not see Alex Rins and LCR ending Honda's wind drought being a, being a storyline for the start of the season. No, it was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a stunning moment. Obviously, took Becker Bagnaia crashing out of the lead, but that's how those things go sometimes. And Alex Rins was much better that weekend than I think he had any right to be and than anybody expected him to be. I mean, I, everybody knows that Alex Rins is pretty good at the Circuit of the Americas, but still that was quite a step above pretty good on a bike that he's still not entirely in tune with on a bike that doesn't necessarily receive all of the bits that Alex Rins would like it to have. So it was a, it was a, it was a, a big performance and a, and a really big deal. I don't know if it changes our global picture of Honda season necessarily. Probably not. I mean, after that weekend, Alex Rins has pretty much returned to largely where we would expect him to be, which is to say that lower reaches of the top 10 or just outside the top 10 and crashing a whole whole lot on the honda which is something honda riders do um but yeah that was a it was an outlier it was not like it was not super confusing and like massively out of nowhere because we know what what the bike can do at that circuit and what the rider can do at that circuit but yeah still absolutely accurate to say that it was it was a proper proper shock i I think the most dangerous thing about Rins's result would be thinking that it in any way implies that Honda have come close to fixing their problems and that anyone needs to take their eye off the ball. Um, it, it for me it was a kind of a combination of fortuitous circumstances of having uh, a rider who is very very talented and very very good at the Circuit of the Americas on a bike that is very good at the Circuit of the Americas when you look at its record. Uh, and then a few other people falling off and, you know, leaving a clear path for him. Um, he, yeah, I'd hate for Honda to think, oh, things aren't as bad as we think they are by looking at that one performance, because that is absolutely not the case here. Um, I mean, all you have to do is look at the, you know, his other former Suzuki rider, uh, Juan Mir and, and how difficult things have been for him this season to to get a better picture of of the true level of Honda. Um yeah, the things things aren't as rosy as that. Um the other thing obviously that we should mention is that if the bike was able to do that with Alex Rins on it and Mark Marquez had been there and fo- was fully fit, Alex Rins wouldn't have won that race. And and we would be having this conversation in in less you know, we would be less shocked by 
the performance had Marquez done it. I mean, had Marquez done it, it means he would have stayed fit. He would have been leading the championship, I think. But that's <laughs> genuinely, I think, I think there is yeah. absolutely there was absolutely a path in this early season for Mario Marquez to be leading the championship after after the five rounds. But he did immediate irreparable damage to that in Portimao. Yeah, and the, the extent to which um, Marquez did that and what a shock it was. I think it's something we'll come to later in in the section of the episode plan that I've just marked as shunts. But yeah, like you say, there's Austin was such an outlier for Rins to the extent that, you know, it's the only time he qualified second there, his highest other qualifying position is 12th. I've only noticed Rins since Austin when he's been landing in the gravel because his record since then has just felt like crash, crash, crash. I, I would class Mir being so far off and in such trouble. It's not just the lack of pace, but how unhappy he seems, how much he's crashing, which is not something I've associated with Mir to this extent for, for a long time. It just, I wasn't super confident that this was going to work because it's very hard to be confident about a rider moving to Repsol Honda these days because it's been so long since since that move has actually succeeded for anyone. I, I really didn't see it being this abysmal and miserable for him. No, it should, it should not be this bad. It's, it's, it's really confusing because it's like, I don't think... I really don't think the preseason foreshadowed that particularly. He, you know, he wasn't going to be fighting for regular podiums or anything. But this is a bit, a bit much. And uh, the problem is probably, I suspect it's probably just a pretty simple twofold problem. Uh, problem number one: it doesn't look like Juan can do much over a single lap with the Honda, and he's already not a great qualifier, quite famously so, and. It's just, you know, it's just proving unforgiving in this particular circumstance. It's a, it's not like he's qualifying a million times worse than he was at Suzuki, but the difference that sets up and the fact that he can't make it up at all over the opening laps and doesn't have the confidence to take those those early risks or it seems any sort of risks, well, that difference is night and day, obviously. And then you're stuck in 15th for the whole race and you're just... You know, you're just lapping around there, waiting for your front tire pressure to spike when waiting to go down. Um, it's it's really it is really surprising still to me that he's crashing as much as he is, even though we know that the Honda is not the friendliest of bikes. But I think his current crash count is for Grand Prix weekends. I think it's eleven across five wow. weekends, yeah. which is I think he's the only double digits rider as far as I know. And it's just, I, I was looking it up, like I, I noticed it looking up a completely different thing for a completely different piece. I was looking up Marco Bezzecchi's crashes because remember last year he was riding off a lot of bikes. And actually this year, even though it's deceptive probably and it'll shake out over a bigger sample size, on six crashes, he's actually on course to top what he had last year. And that's still like half of what Mir has. Yeah. Uh, Joan Mir is on pace to record crash totals that are unthinkable, basically, in modern MotoGP, uh, or presumably any MotoGP. If he can, if he continues this average, he's on for around fifty crashes during the course of the season. Which, yeah, yeah, is, is yeah forty extreme. something. Yeah, it's it, it's it's not great. And just to context that, his the most crashes he's ever had in a season was twelve in his rookie season. So we're five rounds in. And he's gonna essentially at round six match his his you know worst ever season with another I don't know four hundred and seventeen races to go or something <laughs> like yeah. And what was it, his twenty twenty crash tally was about two, wasn't it, across the course of all sessions? Well, he he crashed he crashed more in the Hereth weekend uh, this year than he did in his championship winning season. Yeah, his twenty twenty one total was two. His twenty twenty total was five. Mad. Is this so bad that an early contract split is possible? Uh, you know what? I'm I'm gonna go there. Yeah, sure. Because well, is, are you saying is this so bad? Like, is is it way too early to talk about that? Obviously, I mean it's the, the first five the five races of a two year contract. But in MotoGP, it feels like things start out bad, and then before you know it, we're at that point where people start thinking of going their separate ways. Like how long did it take us to to collectively realize that Johan Zarco didn't have a future at KTM? True. It was not that long. It really, it really was not that long. And this is 
I wouldn't even say this is a different type of investment because Zarco was brought in as the potential franchise rider for KTM. And it became very clear pretty early on that things were not going to work and that short of a short of a drastic improvement, everybody was just wasting their time. Mir is younger, but yeah, and it is Repsol Honda. It's not the kind of thing that you give up on very easily. No offense no, to No, but it's also it's also not a team where anyone's turned it around for ages. No, it's it's not. It's not, yeah. If it's, it starts it's, badly, it's, like you say, it, it stays bad here in particular. Yeah, which is which is why I think it's at least it's it's fair to to bring it up. That's like it's it's it it wouldn't be fair to like speculate to suggest, oh, you know, Yamaha should already try to make a play for him, try to get him out of that camp and into its camp. I think it's it's too early for that. But it's it is not too early to say that you know, we've seen this kind of thing before and oftentimes it just doesn't correct itself. So there's precedent for there's precedent to be worried. The the thing for me is that you know, he needs somewhere to go before that conversation happens. So I think it pretty much entirely depends on what happens with Yamaha, because I think that's the only place for him to go. Unless, you know, we're gonna see him end up on like a Grissini Ducati. Um the, the options are limited and he's far too smart to walk away from a, you know, probably financially lucrative Repsol Honda deal without having something else lined up, without having a future plan. I, um, I was going to say, you know, Johan Zarco didn't have anywhere to go when he when he split with KTM. But Johan Zarco and Joan Mir are totally yeah. different fish. Yeah. They're, they're, they're totally different characters. Um, plus, let's remember, Zarco was essentially sacked. Yeah, but he was, you know, he was already. And I think in this case, walking away, and I don't think had anything lined up for the for the following year at yeah. the moment where he was parked. But, but in this case, I think Honda are going to be trying to do everything they can to keep Mir because yeah. what else are they going to do without him? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you know, no one wants to ride the Yamaha, but no one wants to ride a Honda. I mean, if, if Mir walks, I mean, just Alex Rins gets promoted into Repsol colors, and that's, I guess, that's fairly simple, but. I'm obviously, I don't think there's even any consideration to letting that happen. I, I can't imagine. It's 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 too early. There's been, I think, there's still been enough of a flash that Yonir with Honda isn't doomed conceptually. Like he can do decent stuff on that bike. But I also felt that way about Jorge Lorenzo in his first rounds, and then he just got kept getting hurt, and he got so hurt that he no longer wanted no longer wanted to risk getting more hurt. And that's also a thing that comes into play when you've crashed 11 times in the first five weekends, doesn't it? At a certain point, you, I, I don't remember the exact words Jorge Lorenzo used, but my recollection of his retirement, yeah, the word afraid comes up. I think he was afraid of doing more damage to himself with a bike that he didn't, didn't trust, didn't have confidence with, didn't enjoy riding because he felt he couldn't prevent himself from crashing it really hard. Johan Mir right now, Johan, Johan Mir right now cannot stop himself from crashing this bike really hard, which is, it's it's worrying, it's scary, and it, it will weigh on him until he, he gets a grip on it or until he realizes that actually, no, I don't trust it, I can't do this. Yeah, when, when I talk about an early split, I don't see, like you say, Simon, I don't see Honda going, no, this hasn't worked out, bye, because it's not like it's working out that much worse than it has for most people Honda's tried to bring into that team lately. Just really almost out of just sympathy for Mir, whether it's the injuries or the mental toll on just every weekend turning out like this, I I think for his own sake, he should be reading his small print and, you know, going and just having a little chat with Aprilia maybe, if, you know, we, we there may be a vacancy there. Certainly, well, yeah, not anytime soon, but just getting himself on the radar there for a little further down the line. But, yeah, so let's move on to someone that is actually doing well, but maybe not as well as we would have expected at this point. Shock number three, Peko Banyaya is only one point ahead in the championship. I mean, yeah, that, that'll happen if you don't finish three of the five main races. That would, it's, it's actually quite remarkable that he's leading the championship despite posting a 
67% DNF rate. Wait, no, not 67. I can't count. That was awful. 60. 60% DNF. Oh, yeah, well, what is wrong with that's me? That's pretty close. Jesus Christ. No, no, it's not close enough. That was not good. Um, you are king spreadsheet yeah, on is, editorial team. So never, okay. I, would, I would ask for this to be deleted, but I, it's more honest to, to keep it in. But yeah, 60% retirement rate from Grand Prix. It's, it's, it, is, it is a concern. And you know, two of those were solo crashes. One was a crash that you know sort of not really at fault but maybe a crash of a case of you know discretion being the better part of valor um it's i don't know how much of a surprise it's been because we've seen peko banyaya go in a bit of you know a bit of a crash run sometimes and then sort himself out for a bit and then restart it and then sort himself out for a bit uh, maybe at this point in his career still even as champion he's still this kind of rider for better and for worse maybe that doesn't even necessarily have to be um like this huge huge problem because i think it's not going to be 60 percent over the full season obviously low sample sizes all that jazz um and he's still very quick he's the quickest rider on the grid i think we all still expect him to to win the championship so I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm like super shocked because just, you know, watching the races on live timing, when you see Banyaya, Ryder, okay, crashed, come up, you're never that surprised, right? It's not Maverick Vinales going down. Maverick Vinales crashing. You're like, what has happened there? Did he encounter a straight cat in the on the road? Did his Aprilia just stop working? And usually it feels like it's one of the two. It's either some sort of calamity that hasn't much to do with individual riding or it's the bike crapping itself just just point out that Alicia Spagaro has quite crashed twice this year because the Aprilia broke and because he encountered a stray cat oh yeah there you go yeah I mean uh well Alicia has been doing more general solo crashing than Maverick Maverick just doesn't do it uh but yeah Pecco does do it and it's something Ducati I think at least partly accepts it would like him to tone it down a bit it would like him to be better at settling for results and maybe better at I don't want to say maintaining focus because you never know what's going on in a rider's mind when they crash, but basically it would like him to be it would like him to be more efficient with points. But he's still at least really fast, and you'd rather have that. So it's, it's a bit surprising, but I don't think it's like it's it's super shocking, and it's just it's a question of whether Peko Banyaya will ever be like super different, whether he'll ever be this Maverick Vinales level if I just like crash once or twice a season and that's enough. You get the impression that against organized opposition this season, he would be like like 50 points down at this point. But there's just been no organized opposition, you know, with, with Quattararo struggling on the Yamaha, with Anaya Bastianini being out for basically the entire season, with Mark Marquez being in and out of the season and on a crap Honda, you know, there's just no one to take the fight really to Bagnaya. And if if he was finishing second or if he was crashing out of second behind, say, Bastianini every weekend, you'd kind of understand these crashes. But you know, they're really difficult to put a finger on the cause of them because they're seemingly just coming scattergun random. Um... In fact, the, the one that, that I think actually makes the most sense is the crash in Le Mans with, with Maverick Vinales because that yeah. was him trying to be aggressive and trying to do something different on the bike to get through the field. But, you know, the the, the Coda crash, the, the Argentina crash, you look at them and just think, what have you done, man? Like, what's going on? This is the Peco Bagnaya we expected in Pramac colours. And got very often and, and we in, thought, in Pramac colours. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but we thought that he, you know, learned and got past that, and and he clearly hasn't. Yeah, I, I think so. The op- organized opposition point is is correct. I do think that maybe at least the Le Mans crash doesn't happen, and I think we're gonna we're gonna get into Banya's controversial satellite bike point here. The Le Mans crash doesn't happen in a different, more older style MotoGP where you have three or four riders who are reliably confident that they will at least be able over a race distance to beat all the other bikes and get get sort of that top three, top four results in those top three, top four points. For Banyaya, letting Vinales go in Le Mans wasn't 
really an option. I mean, I think it was, but it was it would have been a lot harder to settle for because in the early laps now, every bike you let through has a pretty good chance of staying ahead of you until the end of the race, which was not the case in MotoGP past. I mean, Valentino Rossi would routinely start races running like 6th, 7th, 8th, and very calmly make his way to the front. You just you do not have that built-in advantage, not just between factory and satellite teams, as, as, as Becca was talking about, but between different factories. You've got a KTM ahead of you. You've got an Aprilia ahead of you. You've got, I mean, the Honda of Marc Marquez ahead of you. Good luck. Well, let's let's see if that point holds when Bastianini's fit and we actually get to see if his his tired magic late race charge trick works in factory colours as well. It's um it's a good point to actually talk about these Peko Banyai comments about satellite bikes. Now, as far as I could see from those interviews, he didn't at any point say let's slow the satellite bikes down. He was just on a bit of a thought experiment that essentially MotoGP is more competitive than it was in the Rossi Pedrosa, Stone, and Lorenzo era when they were the four quick people and no one else was. It was possibly an ill-advised thought experiment to start going off on in the middle of a media session without really making the without adding in a but I don't want them slowed down. Yeah, and yeah, unless yeah, subconsciously it possibly does because it wouldn't hurt at all, would it? But um, for sure, it's it's certainly attracted quite a lot of backlash. I mean, Simon, you wrote a column defending. Banyaya, not for even for the stance he had, but just kind of protecting a bit from the the kind of furore that had uh, burned up around it. But the comments on that column were pretty vicious, with people kind of going, "No, he yeah, he was calling for satellite bikes to be slowed down." That the guys forgotten what, how he earned this Ducati ride, and uh, yeah, it's it's blown up into quite a mess. I mean, even if you even if you was calling for satellite bikes to be slowed down, I I. I genuinely don't know and I don't I probably don't think so is Pekka Banyaya is too smart not to understand that having really competitive satellite bikes has made the the championship much better and a much better watch I, he was just clearly a bit freaked out by the magnitude of the incident we now know that he sustained a fracture of something or other in that incident that talus bone in his right ankle talus bone yeah there you go that he should be fit for Mugello for but will have hurt in that moment and will continue to hurt presumably through Mugello I'm just what annoys me is you don't you don't have to agree with with Banyai's point you don't even have to think that he honestly has a point at all you don't have to see any sort of connection between the satellite bikes being more competitive and the rate of crashes although honestly i think that connection to me passes the smell test like i at least i i do understand what he's talking about it makes a bit of sense to me but you i think this the people who are piling on and getting really incandescent about what peko banyaya said in his post-race media debrief after he had a big crash are the same people who complain about how modern sports people, including MotoGP riders, are now robots who control everything they say and don't express any emotion. You have to let sports people and riders be wrong. You have to disagree with them without getting super annoyed and angry and personal about it. I think that's that's very important. That's you know something as we as journalists want. We want those you know guys and girls to be honest and to feel like they can express their thoughts openly about their rivals, about the state of the competition, about what they want to see and they don't want to see without it getting very nasty and without the the team's PR department having to start getting worried and having to start tacking on extra media classes, having to maybe the writer themselves starting to check themselves when they start to speak. Especially, you know, there's also language barriers at play and all that. Even if Peko Banyaya advocated for you know increasing the gap between factory and satellite bikes just go nah that's it he's not in charge of the championship he's not Carmelo Espeleta it won't happen MotoGP will not be interested in going back to the you know the four bikes can be on the podium and that's it era because that was a lot less good than this so like don't worry about it just let him express his thought. It was not a thought entirely without merit. It was slightly clumsily expressed, but he had just been in a big crash in which he'd hurt himself. 
For me, there's there's one obvious reason why this has been made into a big story. It's because he said something in a media debrief, which was then, I'd argue, translated into a different language, perhaps not directly implying what he meant. Um, I mean, even the video that Dorna posted is not a correct translation because that's already been corrected to us by Ducati. Um, it was then fed to Hervé Pontural at Tech 3 Gas Gas, who said something explosive and loud, and the organisers of the championship saw an opportunity to make a bit of, uh, you know, make a bit of a bounce and, and get some clicks. So they stirred the whole thing up. Um, the comments were made in a media debrief session that is the sort of place where writers have, you know, you said thought experiment, Matt. You you can have those sorts of thought experiments in a media debrief with the guys around you that you know um, because you don't expect it to be chopped up out of context and stuck in the internet as a video clip. And that's exactly what MotoGP did, which Ducati are really not happy about um, because the cameras were not there to do that. The cameras were there for the end of season documentary that they're going to make should Bagnaia win the championship. The, the end result of all that is, you know, exactly what you said, Val. We're now going to have a more guarded, more closed, less open, less interesting Peko Bagnaya for the rest of the season. Because he's going to have, the takeaway that he's going to have from this is that if I say something, anything controversial, I'm going to get slammed for it. So I'm not going to say anything. I mean, I'd hope that that prediction is a little bit like all the people saying that the penalties would mean the racing suddenly got really processional because that, that hasn't happened. I hope, like... Banyai's actual human nature still shines through and he, he, I expect he will be a little bit more careful with his words for a few races but beyond that we'll get back to we'll get back to him saying kind of what he thinks even if he hasn't fully formed that thought to to make it kind of bulletproof on social media yeah I think I think he'll be more guarded on this particular topic but I don't generally generally when writers say that they'll they'll be more careful with what they say next time that doesn't doesn't really happen doesn't happen yeah has Cal Crutchlow ever said that no, he's, never actually um, prom- he's never promised that, has he? No. Paul Espargaro, no. I think, has. And Paul Espargaro is still Yeah, that made most, zero yeah. difference, yeah. didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, while we're on the topic of um, satellite riders making Banyai's life difficult, is it a shock that it's Marco Bezzecchi who is his main championship rival right now? I'd say that's that's um, somewhere between shock and surprise. I'd say a little bit. I'd say a little bit because, again, I expected it to be Jorge Martin. Marco Bezzecchi is not Jorge Martin, so not quite... I'm not quite right, but I also, I expected, like, I, I'm not surprised by Bezeki's points tally. If you told me he had, what, 93 after five races, I'd say, yeah, that sounds correct to me. If you said then, and he's one point off the championship lead, that's where my, my, my eyebrows would lift up quite a bit. Um, I think he's been basically as good as we anticipated, and I think we can pat ourselves on the back here as being able to perceive the most obvious of outcomes. I think the VR46 Ducatis look very good in the preseason. You know, generally the year old Ducati is obviously a very good, very refined bike like it was last year. Yeah, different year old Ducati, but you know what I mean. And Marco Bezzecchi is the best of the year old Ducati riders. So two plus two equals four in this particular case. And and that's that's what we've been seeing. Yeah, honestly, with that said, the nature of his two wins maybe is a little bit surprising because they weren't like maybe Lamont was a bit opportunistic, but Termas was just he ruled that weekend with an iron fist. He was just he was the best throughout. He should have probably won the sprint too. He won the the race in the wet in totally different conditions by a country mile. It was incredible. Uh, maybe I didn't expect him to be capable of this kind of domination so soon. But as for as for the overall massive results, I don't think it's a it's a huge shock. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best. And that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable and works in a range of social and professional settings. 
Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. This does count as a shock. The team giving Ducati most hassle in the championship and in terms of on-track performance is KTM. You know, we, we've talked about Honda and Yamaha having horrible seasons. We did kind of see that coming. We had expectations for Aprilia, but KTM putting together as consistent, I think this is the main thing, a consistent front-running performance so far, that definitely you know, counts as a shock to me. And it's it's Brad Bender and, and Jack Miller, well, more, mainly Brad Bender right now, just lurking in the championship in case anything goes wrong for the remaining factory Ducati. I mean, I, I don't think I'm surprised by KTM having this season. I'm more relieved that they're actually finally having the season that they've been promising to having for about four years now. Um, we always knew that whenever KTM rocked up in MotoGP, they were coming here to do one thing and one thing only, and that was to win, because that's what KTM does everywhere they go. Uh, but man there's been so many false starts and like semi-successful testing programs and weird blips of form where for three races they're unbeatable and then disappear again and you know it's been a rocky road to get here uh we came out of testing writing about whether we didn't know whether or not this was going to be another one of those seasons or not because we we legitimately hadn't been able to tell from what they'd done in pre-season and then they, you know, they started to put it all together. It started to look good. It continued to look good. Uh, Brad Binder is incredible in sprint races, it turns out, which is a little bit of a surprise because he's someone who, you know, on Sunday picks his way through the field rather than seemingly makes up 12 places in the first corner every time, which is what he's doing at the minute. Um, but, yeah, I think we're at the point now where we can legitimately say that KTM are... Maybe not title contenders. Maybe that's a bit too strong in a normal season. But as we've already discussed, Bagmaia is making this not a normal season. And that means that they're within touching distance right now. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's not something I anticipated at all going off how the preseason looked in, in Portsmouth. Um, but the bike was basically instantly better the second it went into Grand Prix weekend mode which some at KTM indicated should be the case. So my fault for not taking that them or under word for that. Well, there were, there were a few precedents that might have been skewing your expectations. A yeah, little bit, maybe, but not from, not I guess not from Jack Miller in particular, because, you know, Jack Miller hasn't been there before. True. And clearly has had a, has had a very, very significant effect, even though he's not their championship flag bearer. I'm fairly convinced Brad Binder is that and I'm I wouldn't say I'm bullish on his title hopes but I at least I really like his chances of finishing second in the standings for instance like I really really like them and that's testament to how much better the KTM was than it was but also testament to Binder basically continuing to be that same rider who finished like top six top seven in the past couple of seasons with a bike that really wasn't befitting i think of those places over the whole season as a whole um yeah it's that one i would i would class as a shock a lot of it is being helped by the fact the bike is clearly amazing off the line just you know watching almost any start i know the riders can do the job with it but uh, it's you know some of the differences are just they're so remarkable they're so striking uh even, you know, with Bitecki, actually, the big weakness might be the starts. And the the Le Mans race he won, the French Grand Prix, you see, you watch the, the main start for that. 
and he you know he gets moving and a row behind him so exactly three places a row behind him brad binder gets mo- moving and you count one two three binders alongside then another like one two binders well ahead coming into coming to the first corner if bezeki doesn't clear him at the dunlop chicane later if binder doesn't you know maybe get slightly outfoxed there does brad binder win that race potentially he avoids the the alex marcus ramming certainly it's you know that having those starts will pay off i think a lot more often than maybe we even appreciate now that now that the bike is good enough to get them into q2 fairly regularly yeah, having someone with Brad Binder's racecraft, and I think we, the sprints have proven it's not about Brad Binder having long run pace so much as Brad Binder just having an amazing racing instinct in, in MotoGP, and he can turn it on in a short race too. His racecraft plus a bike that starts incredibly well is is quite a combination. I, I've i been really pleasantly surprised by Miller, not because I thought he would be slow, but changing teams and changing manufacturers in modern MotoGP is not an easy thing to do. Almost everyone has a settling in period. And okay, Miller made a mess of Le Mans, but he made a mess of Le Mans in the way Miller makes a mess of weekends sometimes. You know, his race pace fades, he throws it down, down the road. But he's he looks, if he wasn't throwing it down the road, if he was like sorting his race pace a little bit, he looks like he could be matching Binder, who's been so established at KTM for so long. He's basically done a really good job of really quickly getting back to Jack Miller's peak level of leading races, burning the tires and then falling off, Um, which is why he'll never be a title contender, because that is the Jack Miller way of doing things. But he's done an impressive job to get to that point so quickly in the KTM. That's probably testament to, you know, the rateability of that bike. Whenever you look at how others have struggled to adopt this year and, and, also, when you look at the job that's being done by Ricky Augusto Fernandez, you know, that also hints that the bike is, is quite rideable. Um, but there's a reason that Jack won't ever win a title. He'll win races this year on that bike. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous about my surefire prediction that Maverick Vinales and not Jack Miller was definitely going to be the one to get to three MotoGP wins on, on different bikes this season, which, you know, I... I still stand by. I still think Maverick's a bit closer to it. And you watch, you know, Aston or Silverstone, I think it might come, maybe. But it's clearly it's it's so much closer than than I would have accounted for. Which is also it makes me partly bullish on on Miller's chances, maybe even maybe even to fight for the title at some point, even though we've we've seen him reach the same level at, at Ducati, it's just because if you if you repaint his, you know, his name tag on, on lifetiming or whatever from orange to red, it makes you know it makes perfect sense already. He could have been doing these exact same results on the on the Ducati. But it's been so little time with the KTM that I wonder if there's still a bit of extra waiting to be unlocked. And I guess, you know, I guess we'll see over the over the next few rounds. Because if if, if he can still if he can still find even more with more experience. Then I think even even his shortcomings can be can be masked by by the sheer pace and qualifying performance and good starts. But we'll see. Val, you brought up Vignoles, which allows us to look at Aprilia quickly. Like I said a moment ago, we did think Aprilia might be the main challenge to Ducati coming into the season. On actual bike pace, it probably should be. Aprilia has not taken the step forward in terms of executing a weekend and actually getting the results that we it, it needs to now to kind of solidify all the progress it's made over these last few years and prove it is a, a proper front runner no it is still a bit i mean i i i, I do mention that parallel but it is a bit yamaha-esque because they're they're really quick on friday and they're very quick when they're running by themselves and if it was a a time trial competition aprilia would do fantastic but for some reason just you know the further into the weekend we get and when other bikes start showing up around it things don't work so well and when conditions are changeable things don't work so well i mean it was really bad in the wet at termas really really bad and you know on vinales side in particular it feels like he's routinely very fast and then just there's like one or two misstep every weekend somewhere that things just spiral out of control from there like he's just not he's not robust in the in the performance that he can bring on and you know part of that is the 
front tire pressure thing that Aprilia seems to struggle more with than almost any other bike, maybe apart from like Yamaha or something, maybe not even Yamaha. Part of that is just, you know, Maverick Vinales, the way he is and the way he has been in MotoGP for virtually his entire career, save for maybe that one really good Suzuki year. Yeah, I'm, is it, is it a shock? No. No, probably not that Aprilia is is doing the way it's doing. If anything, I I'd still say that I'm I'm more surprised by the fact that the bike has not turned into a pumpkin. It is a great bike, still is. It's it's even better this year by all accounts than it was last year. And I don't know why. I just I expected some regression to the to the mean from the Cinderella story and the fact that it's not coming is is huge testament to the to the engineering prowess at Aprilia. And the ingenuity, and you know what that what that particular squad is is doing, but again, there's only so much we can talk about that when the the results that it warrants aren't coming for one reason or another, or fifty reasons, or the chain flew off, or the bike expired, or the right height device didn't deactivate, or front tire pressure, and you go into the gravel. You know, the execution is just it's a bit annoying. It's annoying how it doesn't it doesn't really come together because. You no, know, both of those, both of those riders, you, you'd like to see them winning. Yeah, you say it's not necessarily a shock. I think I'm, I'm with you on that insofar as this is what I thought might happen, but really, really hoped for the storyline and for the sake of Aprilia that it, that it, it didn't basically. Also, Val, you talk about regression to the mean. The thing is, like Aprilia benefited last season. Okay, it made a step forward, but it benefited from a lot of other people making a mess of last season. Even more people are making an even bigger mess of this season. And Aprilia is, is actually among them this year in terms of how it's how it's not getting yeah. results. And that really shows... I, I, actually, if we had this conversation before Le Mans when Vignola's was actually in a better position in the championship, we could still be saying, you know, all this has gone wrong, but he's still yeah. there-ish. Yeah, I, I don't see any situation where Aprilia is, is now... Not so much a title contender, because I don't think we can actually talk about title contenders that aren't Banyaya at the moment, really, despite what the championship table says. It's just Banyaya's pace and smoothness when things go right as such that he can just walk away with this when he kind of gets gets around to it almost he's got yeah. enough races to do it in yeah but i can't see a pretty putting itself where it's in position to make jump on any stumbles that banyaya has i think ktm's made that role its own now it just needs to be more robust really and it, i think it's primarily almost on the analysis side of the garage just you have to be more robust in your performance i mean ideally you should have won at le mans probably had the pace to win at Le Mans, but just not not delivering on the potential because a MotoGP weekend is never as straightforward as you, you'd you like it to be on paper when you have the kind of pace that the Aprilias have. And there's one storyline at Aprilia that we haven't really even had a chance to see yet, and that was what Miguel Oliveira was going to do on that bike. There have been flashes that that could be something really rather good. But he's been he's had two injury layoffs already, and that brings us on to what are class as the other big shock of the season. Just how basically violent it's been in terms of rider injuries, in terms of collisions. You know, we'd said for quite a long while, once sprint races were brought in, twice the number of race starts, shorter races, that's gonna be that's gonna be fraud. I don't think any of us expected quite what we we gritted our teeth through over the Portimao weekend, where almost every time you look back at the screen, someone was not just crashing, but crashing and hurting themselves it was it was a brutal start to the season yeah i mean i did the i did the maths in this yesterday and out of the 22 riders on the grid eight of them have broken a bone or had surgery so far this year wow like that's that's the level we're at here that's you know and, and one of those injuries is the most serious injury that we've had in MotoGP in maybe 10 or 15 years um, in the form of of Paulus Bagaros, you know, at the start of the season in uh, in Portimao, it yeah, broken bones for Marini, for Bagnaia, for Bastianini, um, Oliveira's basically torn every ligament in his body at this point. It seems Mark Marquez has needed surgery for a long layout. Um, yeah, it's just been horrendous, and. Obviously, a certain part of it is sprint races because a lot of those injuries have occurred in the opening laps, on the opening lap in some cases. Um, some of them have occurred because of 
the the sprint race format like that that for me was the cause of a Spagaro's crash and and the weird pressure that guys now get put under in every single session to perform because you're always fighting for a Q2 spot before it comes to actually racing even um and and some of it is you know exactly what Bagnaya said and got slated for whenever you have super close racing it, it's going to cause things like this to happen um i mean the the uh, the Alex Marquez Luca Marini crash in Le Mans is probably the good ex- a good example of that where basically Marie, you know uh, Marquez was two bikes back behind him but was still so close to him that he couldn't see where he was and hit him whenever he almost fell off. It's just the nature of MotoGP right now, and I think what we're seeing this season is is kind of all of those factors coming together at once in a violently spectacular manner. Actually, it should stabilize again. I hope over a bigger sample size. I, I really hope, at least, because this this has been a, a, a freakish amount of of injuries and really bad, scary crashes. And as as I said in an earlier episode of this podcast, it's you know it's getting really exhausting to show up every weekend and go. Well, gosh darn it, we've avoided another big one that was millimeters away from being the worst thing we've ever seen. And I don't I don't particularly enjoy that because sooner or later the millimeters don't work out in your favor. Let's hope the the numbers magic goes a bit more our way over the rest of the season. The injuries are prompting some proper layoffs as well, which is I feel that this is yeah, it's a thought experiment in a slightly Pekka Banyar in a press conference kind of way. But when I was first like trying to get friends into MotoGP, I'd, I'd tell them about things like Lorenzo being on the podium on crutches. I'd show them there's a, there's a picture of Randy Zapunia, I think, basically getting his leg broken by a rider riding over it. And then he was back two or three races later. You're not having those same storylines of half-broken riders pushing themselves back onto the bike. The bikes are getting more physically challenging with the aero. I think that could well be a factor but also i do wonder if people have learned the mark marquez lesson and the takanakagami lesson from last season and they're not actually taking a chance particularly given that like you say how intense these weekends are you can't really cruise around and protect yourself particularly well i don't like riders getting hurt but if riders are getting hurt and they're not absolutely destroying themselves by coming back after two races when they could actually recover properly that's that's one slight positive maybe I think that what we're seeing is just bigger crashes and guys getting hit harder and and more force involved because we're not seeing, you know, in in, in all of the crashes that we've had this year and all of the chaos we've had this year, I don't think anyone has broken a a shoulder blade or a a collarbone, sorry. No, true. Because the airbag suits mean that it's very hard to do that now. So what we're seeing instead is that guys who... You know, maybe you would have broken a collarbone, but now the airbag protects it. So you shatter your shoulder blade, and you've sat out every race this season, like an Abastianini. You know, we're we're seeing bigger forces. We're seeing different crashes. Um, the the only one that I think has shown any real uh, sort of self control was Marquez in, in not rushing back with that wrist injury. Um, I think he played it safe, but he knows that one more injury to that arm and it's career over for him. So he's playing it a little bit more carefully, but like things like uh, you know things like uh, Miguel Oliveira, both of his crashes have resulted in in pretty bad ligament damage, and that's not necessarily something that we would have seen in the past, I guess. But it's also something you just can't rush back from. Yeah, it, you know, ligament damage is worse than a broken bone. And I, I think it's it's all like as as Matt alluded to. I think more than any sort of lessons learned from peers, it's the way MotoGP is now. If your injury is restricting you to running a second or a second and a half off the pace, there's nothing to do there. Just go home. You cannot grit your teeth and and like you finish the race, whatever you finish twentieth, no point, no nothing on offer. Go home. Uh, whereas you know, like fifteen years ago, ten years ago. If you were in one of those, you know, factory superbikes, superbikes isn't super isn't very good. That yeah. isn't superbikes isn't world superbikes. Uh, but yeah, being on one of those bikes, even with that sort of built-in deficit from from your injury hindrance, there was still stuff on offer for you in less than peak physical condition. But here, it's you know, it was, it was no surprise for any of us. For instance, when Ana Bastianini pulled out from his 
return attempt at Hereth, was it? Even though he wasn't that far off, but I mean, obviously he woke up in, in pain the next day and realized there's but he wasn't like you you probably can envision him trying to make it work somehow in a past era just to you know, I don't know ride through it if he was a 500 cc's rider ride through it try to bring it home in like seventh a lap down go home score the points for seventh can't do it anymore so I'm, I'm just doing some very hasty like mid podcast research here um, and and looking at the best kind, looking at uh, last year's Dutch TT at Assen, um, if you'd finished fifteen seconds off the pace, you would have been P fourteen, uh, along with Fabio De Gentonio. In twenty thirteen, whenever Jorge Lorenzo came back with that broken shoulder, like three days after surgery, and f- he was fifteen seconds off the pace in fifth. Oh wow! Yeah. So it's risk versus reward because the championship is so close. Simon, Simon's done my absolute favorite thing ever. And he's backed up my wordy bullshit with actual, like super hard facts. Data. <laughs> I, I appreciate massively. Yeah. R- respect for that. And um, if any Banyar had done that halfway through that media briefing and just gone, look at these, look at these results from over the years. If I, you know, I'd have, had, I'd have not bumped into anybody in this race. If I've been running at this pace in, in 2011. So we've ended uh, the episode on, on a relative down by going into the crashes and injuries. Um, but as exhausting as these first few rounds have been, I am really enjoying this season. What is it? This feels like it's going to be maybe not. Look, if not, we look back as a great season because it's not a proper head-to-head. We're too compromised in who's fit and who's competitive. But it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Are you guys enjoying it between the nerve-wracking moments? No. <laughs> <laughs> it feels really tense. This whole season has felt tense and sort of rushed. Yeah, like if you if you remove the the scary bits, then absolutely this is some of the best racing I've ever seen in anything, and it's reliably great. And even like even the races that are termed boring, I know several other motorsport championships that would kill that would kill to have boring races like that. Oh, completely! At, like yeah. absolutely. Um, but you can't you can't take the scary parts out of the picture. You know that's yeah. the that's the trade off. We're all we're all having a good time, and then for a few seconds every weekend we're having an extremely bad time. Um, I don't know. It's it's a whole philosophical thing that I, I don't feel qualified to to think about on the fly, or really potentially ever as to what's better to you know to have your nerves intact and to have a a boring stroll to the championship and the top four separated by 15 seconds or to have this. I don't know, man. Uh, but I can't, I can't in good conscience complain about the show being put on display like that much. I can't say it, it has looked, it has been really good to watch. If you, if you remove the, the concern that we all feel for, for the riders participating, it's been great. It's been a really good show. I think that's a a good balanced portrayal of how we're all kind of well apart from Simon Simon who's mostly going Ugh! but me and you are going this is great but we're wincing too much every weekend I think that's the best way of summarizing it so MotoGP is not back just yet but when it does come back it'll be for three quick fire races and then we're into the summer break how different is the championship gonna look after the triple header coming up I've with the way the season's gone, I've got a feeling we'll have quite a few more shocks to talk about to come our next mid-break episode. Toby Moody's back with another interview episode next week. Thank you for your company today and for the season so far, and we'll speak to you again when Mijella's coming up. The Athletic.